Join us to hear about current research, programs, and clinical practice improving the health of pregnant women, children, and adolescents in low and middle income countries around the world. This is the Talking Global and Maternal Child Health Podcast Series. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this latest episode of Talking Global and Maternal Child Health Podcasts. I am your host, Kurt Lewis, and in today's episode, I'm chatting with Professor Kirsten Black, an academic gynecologist at the University of Sydney and a fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecology. How's it going, Kirsten? Fabulous. Wet, but fabulous. <laughs> well, I did hear that Sydney's going on somewhat of a deluge at the moment. It's in, <laughs> rather crazy. Indeed. The fourth one, I think. Fourth <laughs> deluge of the year. So um, well, that hasn't dampened your spirits in the slightest, I see. No, I'm okay. Keeping reasonably dry anyway. <laughs> well, I'm glad. So starting off this chat, what led you into studying obstetrics, gynecology and neonatology? So I trained in women's health really because I could see that if you could improve women's lives, it would improve their ability, particularly in the area of family planning I was interested in. Women can choose the number, timing and spacing of their children. It really has a huge benefit for their ability to continue education, continue in the workforce and huge social and economic benefits for themselves, for their children and their families. So really I wanted to work with women. I wanted to empower women through knowledge and through education of their health and also to provide good clinical care to women so that they could do the best, as I said, for their own future and the future of their children should they wish to have children Wow, not many people would consider and link women empowerment with that area of women's health. You know, I think it was always my goal within the field of obstetrics and gynaecology to work in areas really of sexual and reproductive health where there's a huge ability, I think, in all areas of obstetrics and gynaecology, there's a huge ability to make to benefit, mm. to benefit the women and benefit future generations. But I have always been particularly focused on the area before pregnancy, on preventing unwanted pregnancies and also then preparing for pregnancy and optimising health before pregnancy. Mm. And it's a very important area in terms of women's health because it's a very big aspect of, you know, human life in, in essence. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as I said, the ability really to choose whether you have children and the number and spacing of those children is really a fundamental human right. And just one I saw as really, really important to have essentially dedicated my clinical and research life to. Wow. I mean, I read this research article you were one of the authors for, Preconception Care. So can you tell the listeners what is preconception care and why is this care so important? I mean, I've heard of prenatal care, but never preconception care. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not a term that's very well understood, but essentially preconception care is any intervention provided to people of childbearing age and their partners, regardless of pregnancy status or desire, 
before pregnancy to improve health outcomes for women, newborns and children. So preconception care really is based on our growing knowledge that the environment in which a woman falls pregnant is of central importance, not only to the outcomes during pregnancy, but to the lifelong health outcomes of the child to be born. So we're increasingly recognising that it's not, there's a lot of interventions that you can start once a woman's pregnant, but many of them are too late to make significant impacts on outcomes in the pregnancy. I'll give you an example. For example, the issue of overweight and obesity in women There have been multiple studies to try and intervene in the pregnancy once a woman is pregnant to reduce weight gain or to reduce the impacts of maternal weight on the pregnancy outcomes and on the outcomes of the neonate and child. But those studies really point to the fact that once a woman's pregnant and she is already overweight or obese, then it is very difficult to really change the trajectory. And if you want to make a big impact, really those changes probably need to happen before she gets pregnant. Mm. So if a woman is overweight or obese, what are some of the health detriments, so to speak, of being pregnant at, and at that weight? Yeah, sure. So there's the risk of diabetes, gestational diabetes. There's an increased risk that the baby may be born premature. There's an increased risk of other medical complications such as high blood pressure or preeclampsia. There's a risk of the mother requiring a cesarean section. And then on the baby side, there are risks of the baby being particularly large at birth and that then has consequences for lifelong health, particularly childhood obesity. And there's a risk of complications around the time of birth for the baby, increased risk of complications around the time of the birth. I imagine in terms of um, pre-conception care, there is a number of other aspects as well that you're on the lookout for. I mean, I'm aware from, there was the Every Moments Matter campaign that alcohol, while you're trying to get pregnant, can have a very detrimental effect could lead to a a FASD outcome. I imagine there's others as well, other things, you know, aspects that could detriment the baby, a whole list of them, I imagine. Is there there others women should be watching out for? Yeah, so in terms of preconception care, folic acid is another very important issue to take into consideration. There's good evidence that folic acid taken three months before conception and in the first three months of pregnancy will reduce the chance of the developing baby having a neural tube defect. So we encourage women who are thinking about pregnancy to take vitamin supplementations, including folic acid, also iodine is important, before conception. And the issue here is that, and in many, actually in many countries, they many we know that about half of pregnancies are unplanned. So many women don't have the opportunity to take multivitamins before pregnancy. They just fall pregnant. Mostly they're happy about it. Sometimes they're not happy about it. But we know that because of this high rate of unplanned pregnancy, then 
public health measures such as the fortification of flour is very important because it encourages intake of folic acid kind of passively with daily food rather than an active taking of a multivitamin tablet. So I think one of the challenges that we have in the preconception space is that firstly, women are not aware about the preconception. And if you ask people what they know about it, how to plan for a pregnancy, very few people will be able to tell you exactly what the important steps are, such as optimising health and weight, folic acid supplementation, stopping smoking, reducing alcohol. What we need is a is an education and empowerment campaign, a public health campaign that will increase knowledge and understanding of the importance of preconception health. But I think also what we need is just environmental changes. So environmental changes that look at the broader conditions under which families are growing, people are living, the structural environment. We need an environment that encourages people to use public transport, spend time in open spaces doing exercise, access to cheap, healthy food. So I think we need, in order to increase preconception care access and understanding, we need changes both in education and public health messaging, but also we need changes to public health policy to make behaviour change easier to adopt. You listed there that, you know, in some countries, 50% of women, their pregnancy is, you know, they're unaware that they're pregnant. You know, they're not planning to get pregnant, so to speak. It's a major barrier to preconception care. Is there any other major barriers to preconception care apart from the ones you just stated? I think knowledge, just understanding of how to plan for pregnancy is still a significant barrier. And we have, we don't have any national guidelines. There's a few states in Australia that do have some guidelines, but there are no national Australian guidelines. The Royal Australian College of General Practitioners has some guidelines on preventative care and includes preconception care, but it's it's very time-consuming to really address all the areas that need to be thought about in the preconception space. Mm. So whether the woman's immunisation is up to date, whether all her other screening is up to date, her lifestyle issues, her other health issues, such as maybe controlling blood pressure, diabetes. So we need GPs to be aware. We need them to be supported, to have the time and the remuneration to spend the time discussing these health issues prior to pregnancy. But the challenge is at the moment, women actually uncommonly will go to their GP and say, I'm planning for a pregnancy, what Mm. do I do? And in the UK, there's been this fabulous public health campaign that you can see on public transport, which is really encouraging people to think about the importance of preconception care and planning a pregnancy rather than leaving it just up to luck. Because I have very little education about, you know, what I this is the first time I'm hearing about folic acids. I mean, mm. I, I am a male, give or take, but I still had no idea. And I imagine I'm not alone being clueless in terms of, you know, even stuff like alcohol, smoking, people might still be unaware. Hear quite a few quotes, you know, I did that when I was pregnant, it should be fine. 
Yeah. And that's very unhealthy yeah, message no, to spread. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I think particularly in Australia there is – there's so much acceptance of alcohol mm. and it's very, it's part of every social occasion. So it's really very recently that the messaging has been there to really explain that actually no alcohol level is safe in pregnancy. Mm. And indeed, because of this issue that women may not realise they're pregnant to a few months in, if you are planning a pregnancy, the safest thing to do is really to stop drinking before conception. Couldn't agree more. So, and also I have another, you know, a bit unrelated question, so to speak. The first 1,000 days, it, it's been termed as importance. Could you tell me what is the first 1,000 days? What, what, how would you define it? And why is it important? Yeah, so the first 1,000 days refers to a child's life from the moment they are conceived until they've reached two years of age or 24 months. And this is a time when the brain, body and immune system grows and develops significantly. And in addition to, you know, the importance of the preconception period, the environment for the baby in utero has been found to be of key significance. And this is really because the fetus uses the cues provided in the environment in the uterus to predict the kind of world they're going to be born into and they adapt accordingly. And sometimes this adaption can be beneficial or detrimental depending on the subsequent environment. And I'll give you an example. So there's very good examples from the Dutch famine at the end of the Second World War. And really women who had severe nutritional depletion during pregnancy, they gave birth to very small babies. So these babies really were predicting when they were born to be born into a similar environment that they'd experience inside the uterus. So they were born then into a world where it, the famine was over and there wasn't so such extreme nutritional depletion and their bodies weren't predicting that. And so as a result, these children really became, as they grew up, vulnerable to many chronic diseases such as hypertension, diabetes, obesity. So that's the example of really how the fetal environment really shapes how the child is prepared for the outside world. Mm. And similarly with obesity, you know, sometimes the environment in the uterus can actually lead to smaller babies. But in the long term, there's evidence that babies born to women with maternal overweight or obesity do have an increased risk, as I said, of childhood obesity. Mm. Not many people would think about that in terms of like, I, this is the first time hearing about babies adapt to the the uterus in, in essence, and it makes complete sense. With that, in, in respects to the uterus kind of thing, does that also pick up on, on other things? So you, you mentioned that the lack, of, the lack of food or too much food, if the mother has pre-existing conditions, does that affect the uterus in any way? Yeah, I mean, anything that affects the blood flow through the placenta and to the baby is going to affect how the baby grows and the amount of nutrition the baby feels. And there's also, of course, some data to suggest the other, the external factors in a woman's life, so environmental stress, emotional stress, poverty, 
and other adverse experiences can be also passed on and can impact on the neurodevelopment of the fetus. Wow. You've listed a few of these kind of things. I was going to ask you, is there more we could be doing as uh, individuals or as a society to help expectant mothers have healthy pregnancies? But you've, you've already listed a couple, improve education, guidelines. In terms of the education, is there, if you had a like a fund to help improve education, what would your first act be in terms of that? How would you help improve, educate our society in terms of having preconception care? What would you do? Oh, well, I think it would be important to incorporate it as part of sex education in schools, mm-hmm. that people understand not only how to prevent a pregnancy, how to manage an unwanted pregnancy, but also to how to prepare for pregnancy in the future and what they could do to optimise their health before they have a pregnancy. But I think the broader question is that we need really good public health policy that identifies that you know families need safe communities to grow in, secure housing, access to green parklands and environments that are free from toxins and access, as I said, to affordable and healthy foods. So we need action in both of those areas. We need education. So education in schools then public health education, like there has been quite a lot recently, hasn't there, around alcohol and pregnancy. So that conversation could be expanded to really make people understand that there's a number of other things they could be doing before pregnancy if they want to have a pregnancy to optimise kind of outcomes. So they have to be happening in parallel. We have to have this public policy that looks at how can we improve the environment for people in our society and reduce inequity. So if you can reduce inequity in some of those issues around housing and economic stress and healthy food, then that will reduce inequities in long-term outcomes in terms of health for children. I mean, honestly, I had no idea about folic acids or any of this stuff. And I think it's important, especially, you know, I've read a study somewhere that partners, their actions can really help their pregnant partner in terms of like their habits and all that, in terms of like alcohol use, drug use, that sort of thing. And yeah, eating. so we've talked a lot. Of, yeah, yeah, we talked a lot about the women, but yeah. the, certainly the men have a big role to play as well. We know that smoking can reduce the quality and quantity of sperm. Mm. And alcohol has an impact on sperm as well. So certainly we need to encourage people and their partners both to make lifestyle, healthy lifestyle changes together and to support each other because that will lead to the best outcomes for their children. I couldn't agree more with that. Both partners should be very educated and be following guidelines, not just the one. It should pressure should not be put on entirely on women to follow dietary as well as other circumstances. It should be on the men too to you know help out their partner in this very hard time. I imagine pregnancy can be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Global and Maternal Child Health. This podcast series is presented by the University of Sydney Global Maternal and Child Health Network. The copyright is owned by the University of Sydney. All rights reserved. 
no reproduction or use of this content without written consent of the University of Sydney. 